Take a network break. We got a very full plate this week, so grab an extra virtual donut or two as we dive into acquisitions by Juniper, Intel, and Akamai, financial results from Arista, new security products, and more. We're sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. To find out what's next in SASE, sign up to watch Palo Alto Networks SASE Converge 2021. It's an on-demand webinar where you hear from leading voices in networking and security, get details on the impact of SASE technology and more. You can sign up at sasseconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. Stay tuned for a Tech Bytes podcast with sponsored DriveNets. We're talking about how your organization can adopt a hyperscale model in your network to do things like improve TCO, scale out capabilities and services, and get supply chain diversity. So stick around for that. Uh, before we get into the news, we have a follow-up, an FU from a listener. We had discussed uh, a few shows back, one application of the metaverse being the virtual office. Uh, this listener wrote in to say that people may be interested in the virtual office because they're trying to escape from being at home for so much. Uh, but just because you're in the metaverse doesn't mean that you'll escape the screaming two-year-old in the background or the confines of your 400-square-foot apartment. Yeah, I mean, he's got a point, right? Oh, yeah. In the sense that um, and I think the general topic here is that many of our lives are not set up to be at home, to work from home. Yeah. And that's the underlying issue here. Yes. And so you go to the office and your life is built around it. Your house is built in such a way that you're not home for 60 hours of the week. You're in a car and you're in another building somewhere. People's lifestyles are adapted around that, um, you know, and you could take the view that, you know, we have abandoned our children to go to work, which is not something historically we did. So that's a rather, you know, wide focus, you know, that's a wide angle view on the whole situation. It sure is. Um, <laughs> right? You could, you could say that working from home does put you in a difficult situation. And if you do have children in the background, why, is, why are your workmates not tolerant of that situation? Mm -hmm. um, but I think the issue here, of course, is, yes, it's a factor of life, but the issue that I think is relevant here is which group is going to have larger or have more impact. And, and that's a valid concern, but the data I'm seeing is that somewhere between 40 or 50% of people at minimum and as many as 70% have no intention of coming back to the office the way they were. Right. Uh, so that's, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, that future is already flown. People, you know, people have spoken, the cat's out of the bag. The, there's no reasons managers can't say, oh, you can't work from home anymore because clearly you can. Like I'm looking at a survey here that somebody tweeted back at me, Bry MCS, and he said that he's tweeting me a survey which said, what do you miss about office life when working from home? 1,219 votes. One is drink with workmates, 25%. Two, being away from spouse and family, 100 votes, 8%. Commute and time on my own, 15%. Nothing, 52%. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I know it's hardly scientific, but that's a lot of, that's a fairly significant survey sample. And uh, it'd be interesting to know who the audience was there. So I think, so what do I think will happen? I think A, uh, the future here is not evenly distributed. I think who goes back to work depends on who you are and what you do, how you ask and who you ask, right? Yes. I also think that increasingly now that people will be working from home, I'm very hopeful that we'll see a return to local life. So housing and suburbs will find ways to adjust to having people at home. We'll see the emergence of corner shops, places where you can go for a sandwich to, during lunch hour, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, instead of having to go all the way into the city to get a sandwich bar. You know, we used to have shops in our suburbs once. Right. You didn't have to drive 30 minutes to the nearest, you know, mega mall. Right. Yeah, some more local thing. infrastructure for so just quality of life kind of things, yes. Yes, local workspaces. So, for example, in my hometown, there is now six uh office blocks that have been converted into workspaces mm -hmm. where the owners of them didn't try and le lease them out. They found ways to turn them into workspaces. And so now I can go and hire five desks or one desk or, you know, rent by the day. Uh, those are things that are emerging and will come out over time. And I also kind of hopeful that we'll start to see local community groups. So if you've got more time and you need to get out of the house to have a break, well, why don't you go and talk to a local craft group, you know, a woodworking group or a local maker group or a local. Yes. If you aren't spending one, two, four hours a day in a car, you've got time to go and sit down in the pub in the evening and drink with people or just for the, if that's your thing, you know, whatever it is. Um, and another thing too, talking about the noise and stuff in home, um, I'm starting to see products emerge on the market, which allows you to put offices inside your house. So if you've got rented accommodation, you can buy these little cubicles and then, you know, admittedly they're not great. They're only, you know, two cubic meters. And, uh, but you, you know, you assemble them in your house. They've got isolated panels so you can't hear and it's got a chair and a desk inside 
and then you walk in and put your computer in it and you've got an office, which isolates you from the rest of the world, right? I mean, that's not a bad idea considering, you know, whatever, for various circumstances, I can see where that would be appealing. Although it is also kind of funny that we feel like, yeah, we've escaped the cubicle and then the cubicle just shows up at your house. It's a little unnerving, but <laughs> it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Maybe, yes. it, maybe it's maybe it's a temporary thing while you wait to build a an outhouse or you get a, a crane to drop a, a portable office in your back garden. You know, but yeah, drop ship yourself a a, a work shed. Yes, I, I'd like that idea. A work shed, yeah. yeah. Buy yourself a shed, and it's a self assembler, and you can mini. I think those things will come fairly quickly, if if the market is there for them, and and it's really just a case of the change takes time to happen. And eventually it'll start to... You know. Yeah, my whole perspective is that this notion of the metaverse as an application for duplicating that in-office experience just seems like a terrible use of the metaverse. Why would I want to put on a headset and use all that computing power just to put myself down in a bland conference room to look at a PowerPoint with a bunch of other people? That just seems like the most depressing use of the metaverse technology I could imagine. <laughs> it's it's, it's a con just a complete lack of imagination. There is definitely a convergence happening between email, word, you know, word processing, chats, you know, asynchronous communications yep. like voice and video, mm -hmm. asynchronous communications like chat sessions, whether they're, you know, back in the old days, we used to use Yahoo chat for this type That's of stuff. That's right. <laughs> uh, I've been using Slack from since the days of IRC to do work at some form or another. Different companies had different ways. Um, and these things all are different. And the history of technology is that, Things that were once standalone merged together into a unified product, yeah. and that is Metaverse. And for Facebook and and their MetaMates who work for Facebook, <laughs> Comedy Gold right there, um, it, that convergence is something that they see disrupting them. Yes. And so they feel the need to say, well, we're going to be building that. I think it's much more likely that products like Teams or WebEx or Zoom um, are much more likely to be those platforms because they already contain elements of the synchronous. Yes. And they can add elements of asynchronous communications to them. Now, if you're saying that synchronous communications is going to be enhanced by VR, sure, maybe 5% of your time spent in VR, but I don't think most people will spend all their time in VR. It's like Google Glass. Remember Google Glass? I from do remember Google 10 Glass, years ago? yes. And how horrifying that was, was and how horrible it still remains. Yes. Um, there are still use cases for that today. So they still use that in manufacturing plants. Sure. Uh, these people wear the glasses and it shows them where on a machine they should be looking to do a thing. Right. Or you can or call up specs without having to hold something in your, like a tablet in your hand or whatever, if you're working on that's something. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. So that is, that is a VR type application, you know, conceptually. Augmented reality. Yes. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Augmented reality is that, you know, but it's not every day. So. Right. It's not creepy weirdos recording you in the coffee shop. Yes. But I do feel for people who are, you know, if you're a young person out in your first job, you're in a shared house, maybe, you you know, three or four people sharing a house and you've got one room and you're working from home and, you know. Yeah, or folks with young what? kids and two jobs and all that. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, that's right. I feel uh, uh, there's something there. But equally, take, you know, there are ways for you to change your life. Don't whine about the fact that you could, you want to go back to where you were. Think about where you are. And say, well, if I'm living in a house and I'm here all day, maybe I need to get out more often. Maybe I need to go and play golf or learn a sport or join a local society or club to get out of the house and, and meet people. Because the people at the office are not people that you like, let's face well, it. Well, I mean, the office did sort of double as a social life for people who spent a lot of time in the office. And now you could actually choose who you want to spend your time with if, you know, those kinds of societies yeah. and, and groups spring up locally, which would be a nice thing. I, I like that vision. Yeah, I, I've never really been like the people I work with. No disrespect hey. to anybody I've worked with. But, you know. Wait a second. <laughs> I'm going to say present but, company you know, excluded, like, I hope. Yeah, well, absolutely, Dre. Absolutely. All right. So, yeah, uh, thank you for the follow-up. If you've got other comments, queries, corrections, hit us up, packetpushers.net slash FU. We do love to hear from you. Uh, let's dive into the news. Uh, Greg, uh, you wanted to make a few comments about um, the potential cybersecurity <laughs> issues around the uh, kerfuffle in uh, between Ukraine, Russia, and uh, Europe and America. Oh, it's not a kerfuffle. It is, well, a kerfuffle um, is right too soft of a word. Yes, we are talking about too potential bad. war. It's, it is a brink of a war, and this is what uh, you, you know, the United States president and the European Union and the G7 countries are actually calling it on the brink of war. So let's not let's not. I, yes, I, kerfuffle pretend. was a bad word, I admit. Yeah, yeah. So just a few things that strike me about that is we are facing a potential war between Ukraine and Russia, and by proxy between the West and you know and, and communism. So Russia versus NATO. 
and the issue is absolutely escalating. So be in very clear about that. You might not be seeing it. doesn't seem to be getting a lot of press coverage because there's so much else going on. It's not the only thing that's happening in the world. But what is I have noticed is that cybersecurity is definitely part of the initial skirmishes. So there have been a number of attacks on state infrastructure in the Ukraine. Uh, there's a number of uh, community-based or, or civilian hackers carrying out activities against the Russians. And that's very interesting. And we've also seen some financial institutions in, in the Ukraine get impacted. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, while the political and the diplomatic process certainly includes disinformation from all sides, everybody's, you know, jockeying for position, as you would expect. That is absolutely normal. Russia is saying things that it's a message that it wants to telegraph and the West is saying a different thing. And yep. whether they mean it or not doesn't matter. It's just part of diplomacy. But in the context of this podcast and IT infrastructure, you might want to consider whether your employer or what you do makes you a possible target or whether you would even be hit by collateral damage right. and take appropriate measures to improve your security monitoring or your posture or your visibility at this time. Right. Even if you're not a direct target, uh, these kind of cyber attacks can have spillover effects, be it a DDoS, mm -hmm. a worm, you know, a Stuxnet-like um, malware that um, is operating independently and once it hits a target, it can spread um, to unintended consequences, um, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think it is a good point to be aware that uh, the cyber is now a frontier in this battle space and you may be part of it uh, willingly or unwillingly. Yeah. So you might want a heightened posture or some sort of, you know, sense of awareness that in addition to the usual problems, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> malware, <laughs> ransomware, you know, all that sort of stuff, yes. this might also be an issue. You might be facing state-sponsored actors. And it's also reasonable to assume that uh, China and North Korea uh, Iran will also be taking heightened, you know, will also maybe looking to take advantage of this situation to conduct more egregious attacks and then point that, you know, right. attribute it to some, you yeah. know. So, yeah. Interesting times. All right, we got a bunch of acquisition news. Let's jump into it. First, Juniper Networks, they've acquired a network access control or NAC company called WhiteSand for an undisclosed amount. I couldn't find a lot of details on how WhiteSand works. Juniper, it seems like, has taken down WhiteSand's website. Uh, but a blog from Juniper says customers can get NAC without the need for on-premise hardware. And there's also a lot of hand-waving about AI. Yeah, so I think WhiteSand, um, I, did, I did get to look at the website before Juniper scarfed it off the internet. Uh, it was a network access control product, cloud-based software, mm -hmm. which uh, Juniper then goes to great lengths to say that they can now fold this into the their MIST AI ops yep. strategy. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot about how the trend for us for the next three to five years in the industry is going to be operations. doesn't matter how fast it is or whatever. The key factor that customers want is operations, the, the cost of ownership every day, day two. And that the subscription licensing we see means that you have to, vendors have to justify their reason for existing every day because your subscription license is 30 days away, right? uh -huh. which changes the game. Uh -huh. And suddenly op, Ops puts that in. And I think also we highlighted about two, three weeks ago, Drew, when we were talking about another Juniper acquisition, that there's some substantial gaps in their portfolio and a zero trust strategy is part of it. So their campus strategy was weak because it had no zero trust. And their SD-WAN was also weak because, again, no zero trust. And so Whitesand, I think, is uh, filling in that gap. And what they get is a group of people who've been developing a NAC product that is cloud-centric, so they've got the right skills to snap into that AI mm -hmm. MIST, you know, the MIST product range. Yep. And then uh, they can now roll that out with a fork on it, invest it, do some more with it, and then they've got a whole lot of people to make that happen. Yeah, so Juniper is very deliberately and also very slowly building out piece by piece a SASE service, Secure Access Service Edge service. They started with the policy layer. Uh, I think the last thing we talked about was them adding Firewall as a service and Secure Web Gateway as a service. Mm -hmm. They are missing things like Zero Trust slash NAC. So I'm presuming this will snap into that at some point. And in the meantime, they can roll it into you know their, their campus, their YLAN portfolio as well with MIST. Yeah, and they have to move fast because companies like Zscaler and Cloudflare are eating that particular market, right? And if they don't right. move into that gap very quickly, um, they're going to find that there's an incumbent solution at customers who would have otherwise bought them. Uh, Cisco, of course, is having some traction with its SD campus and its NAC, and Arista particularly in its financial results called out that their campus business grew 200% this year, mm -hmm, I think. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, and, and so the campus is where it's at, and this will absolutely be a part of the campus play, and I suspect will be grow into a zero-trust uh, edge-type, remote-access-type yes. 
remote work, hybrid work thing yep. over time. Yeah. So links in the show notes if you want to uh, see what they're up to. Uh, we'll move on. Intel is spending $5.4 to acquire Tower Semiconductor. That's a semiconductor foundry. The company has manufacturing plants in Israel, Italy, Japan, and two sites in the U.S. Okay, so Tower Semi is not a chip company. It's a silicon company, and they're primarily a maker of analog silicon chips and specialty technology. They're taking in about $1.5 in revenue at around about 20% gross margin. Uh, and most of that money comes from the US and Japan. It's been built out of, it's a company that's actually been built by an investment company, and they've been out buying bits and pieces of various companies in the world that are roughly congruent. So they bought National Semiconductor, Maxim, Jazz, and they bought the silicon business from Panasonic. Um, so if you were thinking about uh, components that go inside of smartphones that aren't M1 chips, like cameras and power chips and battery chips mm -hmm. and all those types of technologies, mm -hmm. This is a company that has a leg in a lot of that. It's not a growth company. It's flat, doesn't have any growth projected. It's just turning over and making chips at a nice, tidy profit margin, 20% gross margin, which is pretty good for a chip company. Yep. And then um, the general view is that Intel will then be able to take this technology, redesign those chips to use its own fabrication plant. So remember that Intel's uh, chip making or fabs uh, actually uses a different technology to most everybody in the world. And so... Nobody wants to use Intel's fabs because they have to write them for a fab that nobody wants to use mm. particularly because Intel went at a, you know went a different way in their fab production process. So this is Intel buying a company to get consumption, to, you know, to get capacity on its fabs. Fabs have to work at 100% to be as profitable as possible. So they're buying companies to redesign their chips to run on their fabs. That's right. Intel has also been making a lot of noise about doing more um, fabrication itself, doing building more foundries in the U.S. in particular. Uh, so I think this does align with that goal. Yes, and these fabs are, you know, in the U.S. and Japan and so forth. Company is based out of Israel today, but that's because Israel has such a highly high tech industry that's largely government supported and uh, very popular for uh, Juniper to buy Israeli companies. As a general note, just as something they seem to have. You mean Intel? A good footprint there. Maybe they've got an access access team there or something like yeah. that. Yeah. All right, our final acquisition story for this episode, uh, the CDN giant Akamai is buying Linode for approximately $900 million. Linode pro provides infrastructure as a service, so that's things like dedicated and shared CPUs, bare metal access, block and object storage, managed databases, and more. Yeah, so Linode's been around for a very long time as a hosting company. Back in the days when hosting was, you could buy a machine, rent a machine, or you could buy a VM and then put install your own service and run it on. Uh, they sort of lost their way as the cloud services came along and they weren't really able to move away from the, we're selling a thing to you're renting a thing. Uh, but they've been doing well and lots of people are still very loyal. It's an incredibly profitable business that sort of selling your service to somebody else and, you know, being a some, someone else's service businesses. Mm -hmm. What I can't understand is why Akamai, which is an edge company or a CDN company, suddenly needs a data center business. Is this a sign that edge computing actually needs data centers? It's a cloud. And the cloud is part edge and part core. Is that is that what that's saying? Do you think? Or I, I don't know. I mean, I think for Akamai, always having more uh, points of presence is good for them. Always having more capacity. And I also noticed that Linode does also offer some services, uh, cloud networking services, or DNS manager, cloud firewalls, DDoS protection, which does make them, you know, at least begin to ramp up competition with uh, somebody like Cloudflare. So it's a bit weird. I mean, I don't entirely understand what the vision here is in the blog posts that between the come on the Lionai website and the Akamai website sort of say different things. I don't know if, if that made sense, but it's a bit weird. <laughs> different, so, different visions? It, it, well, it just looks like they didn't coordinate on the release and all that sort of stuff, mm. but there's definitely synergy there. You know, having end-to-end, -end, maybe that's what customers want. Are customers turning to Akamai to say, I also need VMs and containers hosted as well as the CDN as is that the the model that uh, AWS and Azure have promoted, and that's what they're competing against? Unclear, unclear at this time. Yeah, I mean, the headline from Akamai's press release is developer-friendly, massively distributed platform uh, to build and secure applications. I guess that you know, not only can uh, Akamai be your CDN, but they could also be your IaaS infrastructure. I guess maybe is the play. I I, I can sort of see how that aligns. Now, people don't want to deal with dozens of customers. Do you buy Akamai and AWS? Right. Uh, you know, or, you know, do you put your containers in Google and then put Akamai in front of them? Well, maybe you need a end-to-end -end solution and have less supplies. We've seen that plenty of times. Yeah, although Akamai has a long way to go if it's going to try to compete against AWS, but I, I, I'm guessing that's yeah. not quite, I think maybe Cloudflare is more who they're going after. Yeah, potentially so, yeah. 
All right, links in the show notes if you want to check it out for yourself. We'll move on. Gigamon, they've added new features to their network detection and response service. The new feature includes uh, playbooks to help security operators uh, conduct investigations and a full year of data retention. Um, so I'll dig into this a little bit. On the playbook front, Gigamon has essentially developed templates with pre-built queries to help investigate specific events. So if your SOC team thinks maybe there's ransomware going on or lateral movement or you're looking for a log4j exploits, uh, Gigamon gives you these playbooks. They include pre-built queries to help the teams get the right information more quickly. Uh, and then on the data retention front, NDR systems typically store 30 to 90 days of packet metadata. Gigamon's making a year of retention standard, saying that um, for one reason, attacker dwell times are increasing. Uh, so analysts may need uh, a longer view of what's been going on. And you can also, you know, sort of back check if a new vulnerability comes out. Hey, have we seen any activity in the past, you know, X number of months about this new vulnerability? Yeah, so... Network detection and response is the idea that you monitor the network and then you look for patterns and so forth in there. Um, and if you can find a threat or detect a threat or detect a vulnerability or weakness, this is going to flag it up. Now, the weak part of any up until now on network detection and response is vast amounts of data being collected and finding meaning out of the data is the problem. Yes. And Gigamon has wisely invested in this. Um, I think what Gigamon's doing here is that a lot of NDRs um, struggle financially with paying for storage. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, you know. Yes. And I think what Gigamon's doing here is throwing money at this problem and saying, well, we can have a competitive advantage because they've got such a lot of money uh, stacked away. Their financials are quite good. They're a publicly listed company. They've been successful for a while. And so by saying like, you know, well, if the average, you know, dwell time, if somebody has penetrated your organization and the average time inside before it's detected is 245 days, well, you need it's 360. Yes, right? yes. You need to be longer than that to be able to detect when the penetration happened. Yes. If you're going to be able to turn up to the SEC or to the stock market and say, yes, we were penetrated in January. We just found out about it in October. And in December, we're now ready to tell you about it because we've done the, re you know. Right. So this makes sense. But otherwise, not much in there. Uh, I, the other thing I note here is that Gigamon is operationalizing network detention. So this idea that they're going to, help you with pre-built queries for specific events such as ransomware and so forth, um, helps to shift the burden away from overloaded staff inside of organizations and say, I've got a tool that helps me do a lot of the basic work and I can just focus on the advanced work. So yeah. yeah, and just to but be- it's not AI, I've noticed. Yeah. No, no, this isn't an AI solution. And I also want to be clear that this is separate from Gigamon's, you know, basic, that their packet broker and, and network visibility tooling. It's a separate product. It's a SaaS service, so it's entirely cloud-based. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be a Gigamon customer of their packet broker to get it. It's, a, you, it's entirely separate. Um, it's just, it's running on, it it's runs its own sensors on your prem and sends it up to the cloud. Yeah, that's right. Which is probably how you want it for that, because otherwise you need, um, a lot of servers and a lot of hard drives yes. Yes. and you actually don't know how many and you don't know how big and you don't know. Right. So maybe the cloud is the best place for that sort of stuff. As long as you're willing to give away that data, of course. Yeah. And Gigamon has, uh, acquired a, a, a SaaS NDR company. Um, I think back in 2018, that's where this is coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, sticking with security, the startup Aviatrix, which offers a multi-cloud networking as a service, they've added network behavioral analysis or NBA to their offering. Um, Aviatrix deploys software gateways and public clouds for the connectivity, and because the gateways are in the data plane, Aviatrix is already collecting packet and flow data, so now it's using those flow records to look for anomalous behavior that might indicate an attack. So in the vein of any modern network product is not complete without a security angle, Drew. Yes. <laughs> um, and we discuss a lot on the show that networking is a natural place to add security, whether it's the right place or not, is an entirely different discussion that I'm not going to get into today. Uh, Copilot is um, the data source. It's their visibility and operations tool that Aviatrix has developed. And the weakness in this strategy, to my mind, is that Aviatrix only knows what it knows. That is, it's only a multi-cloud networking solution. Right. It doesn't solve your on-prem Issues. So if you've got off-prem networking that you're doing and the only tool you're using for your whole WAN sort of your cloud networking is Aviatrix, then this tool is going to be useful to you. But if you've got an on-prem and a campus and an SD-WAN and you need to have threat analysis for the whole network, this tool isn't going to help you because they're not going to see that data. So yeah. So it's, it's, it sounds to me like uh, customers in Aviatrix said, can you give me some threat analysis because I need it? And those customers haven't thought about the fact that it only solves it for that part of the solution and not the rest of it. Yeah, it's an excellent point that this is only for those Aviatrix um, 
gateways that you're getting this data. If you obviously you have other networks, you're going to need other visibility solutions. Uh, I do think though, Aviatrix is saying, as you mentioned, we are getting this data. We might as well do more with it and make the service more attractive. And they're offering this and other security features at no additional charge. So it's just kind of a, a fries with that approach to their uh, networking as a service offer. Yeah, yeah. So fine if you're an Aviatrix customer, and probably if your job is full time working on Aviatrix for multi cloud networking. You're probably thinking, oh, good, that's good. But then you're probably not standing back and seeing the end-to-end, the bigger strategy picture. That's my concern with this type of product. Sure, potentially, yes. Yeah, and this is why I'd be more leaning into, you know, other products for multi-cloud networking that can integrate with SD-WAN and look at the campus and on-prem data centers and bring the security angle in for the whole thing because you can't just... You know, right. I've secured this one tiny little part of my name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Although I will say it's not quite fair to ask Aviatrix to do the whole thing for you, but you do raise a good point that this is limited to yeah. one domain. Yeah, and that's why maybe they're not charging for it. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, a quick way to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. They launched the industry's first conference dedicated to SASE or Secure Access Services Edge. That conference is SASE Converge 2021. It's now available as an on-demand video event where you'll hear from industry veterans, including Palo Alto's founder and CTO, Nurzuk, Gartner's vice president and distinguished analyst, Neil McDonald, and the godfather of SDN, Martin Casado. You can also see Palo Alto's new Prisma Access 2.2 capabilities in action, get details on the impact of SASE technologies, and learn about forthcoming innovations. If you're curious, go to SASE converge.paloaltonetworks.com to register and see the event. That's sassyconverge.paloaltonetworks.com. We thank Palo Alto for being a sponsor. Back to the news. The Semiconductor Industry Association reports an all-time high of 1.15 trillion semiconductors being shipped in 2021. That's the highest ever total for the industry. Yeah, uh, no show of the network break would be complete at the moment without a discussion. <laughs> of semiconductors <laughs> and supply, supply chain. Yes. Yep. So no episode of network break would be completed without a supply chain reduction at the moment. And the answer here is that there are two things affecting the semiconductor industry. One is, of course, that the COVID caused a staff shortage and a disruption to supply chains in terms of raw material coming in and factory shortages and so forth. But what we're also seeing against the background of that is a, a massive spike in demand. Right. So the obvious one is cars are suddenly buying more chips than ever. We're seeing more TVs shipped than ever, more monitors, more phones. Yeah. And so the, the supply, it, we've talked over the last six weeks about supply chain uh, doing different things. And I think the issue here was um, that demand is up 26% on top of the, the drop in production. And so the supply chain problems will continue for the foreseeable future. They're not not—they're getting worse, they're not getting better. I mean, it just goes to show you how high that demand is given that the semiconductor industry could ship more semiconductors than ever before and still not be mm. enough. That, that's, uh, yes. that gives you a picture of just how strong that demand is yeah. and what we're up against. And, uh, and I've stopped basically talking about it because it's generally bored. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's generally boring. Yes, well, that we just a little data point there for uh, for you to do with what you like. Uh, also, one more note from that press release: industry sales for twenty twenty run reached five hundred and fifty five point nine billion, up twenty six percent over the previous year. So, lots of revenue coming in for semiconductor manufacturers as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of financial results, Arista Networks reported cracking results for their Q four and fiscal year twenty twenty one for the quarter. Arista had. $824.5 million in revenue, up 27% year-over-year, and net income of $239 million. For the full year, Arista posted $2.95 billion in revenue, also up 27% year-over-year, on net income of $841 million. Yeah, so I think that the trick here is that Arista's continuing to grow. There's a couple of things that I, I wanted to just highlight from this that I think would be relevant. One is that Arista talks about uh, they doubled their campus revenue to $200 million in 2021. Yep which is 100 million to 200 million, that's a lot of ramping up. And they expect to do it again to 400 million in 2022. So we've talked about Arista getting into the campus and getting in, customers are turning into that. Um, And so I think we'll see more of um, that type of stuff uh, going on as Arista continues to penetrate. Uh, The financial analyst call, um, they were also talking about why uh, customers are starting to turn to Arista as a routing provider. So they're having a lot of success with customers who are uh, turning to Arista and saying, what we want is the ability to um, 
use Arista as a router. We want EOS everywhere in the campus, in the data center. Yep. But also that Arista is as good as a is a router, high scale, high bandwidth, high reliability router. So we're not we're seeing Arista turn on. Uh, customers saying yes, we'll take on Sys Arista as a routing company, and and a WAN routing company. Yeah, that jumped out at me that that they're saying they're winning actual deals from telcos uh, uh, using mm. Arista switches as routers at the edge. I don't think we're talking about core routers here, but at the edge, they are finding mm. foothold in the telco market in the routing space, which is interesting for Juniper uh, for Arista. Yeah, I mean they've been. I think Arista's been in there for a while with the telcos, especially in. Um, lots of niche applications because the cost and the flexibility of it is is the idea. So, but that's um, quite a flex against you know Juniper, Cisco, and others in that space. Yeah, I think so. And you know their results, you know, continue. I mean, the share price is fully priced. Don't run out and buy Arista because generally people think um, it's not the. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But um, one thing that's interesting is that Microsoft accounted for fifteen percent of Arista's revenue. That's less than it was. So there was a big concern a while back that, you know, one customer, Microsoft, was 30 or 40% of Arista's revenue and Arista continued to grow out other parts of its business. So it's, although 30% of their revenue is still from what they call cloud titans, enterprises and financials come in at 40 and service providers at 30%. So they're sufficiently diversified for tech to say whatever. So it, there's really nothing bad to say about Arista's results. And I haven't talked much about Cisco's results, but just to point out that Cisco's also had an excellent quarter this quarter. They've managed to increase their prices by, I think, another 10%. Um, their back order book is 150% up. So what's happening is customers, are, Chuck was saying that customers are now ordering now in the expectation that it's going to take a year to deliver. Uh -huh. So they're placing their orders earlier. And so their back orders are up 150%. And now they've just got to find ways to fulfill the order book, but they don't expect any problems at this time. I think that's incredibly optimistic, but okay, right? Yeah. So fine. So equally, you could go right the way across the board at all. A10 Networks also had a great quarter and so on and so on. So, Yes, lots happening. Uh, I, th I thought it was interesting that Microsoft is accounting for 15% of Arista's revenue. The company also says that they estimate Meta is going to account for 10% of the company's revenue in, 25, in 2022. So two companies accounting for 25% of your revenue that's, I think, in some ways quite a gamble for Arista, but if you read the uh, transcript with analysts, they are saying they're willing to accept that gamble. They know there are going to be dips and peaks. Right now they're enjoying a peak because uh, the uh, cloud titans are scaling out, so that's good for them, yeah. but they can diversify with a, more of a footprint now in enterprise financials and telcos to kind of help smooth that out. Yeah, and Cisco's managed to get itself back into some of the cloud titans too. Yeah. So it's now whiteboxing a lot of its hardware to the cloud titans, um, it's got its own ASICs that, and it's selling, you know, it's, it's managed to come to arrangements where I suspect Cisco's decided that it has to work with the terms that the cloud Titans specify. Yes. They can't force them to take on no. iOS. They can't force them to <laughs> no. buy product. They'd have to listen, you know, just have to say, okay, well, that's the game. Yes. If we want to sell something to them, we have to buckle under it. I think it took Cisco a while to get there. And then I think it took them a while again to find the right products to sell. To, to, for their internal organization. Big companies are just slow to change. Yep. It's inherent in the nature. And Cisco, once, but once they got it, they'll just iterate on that and get it right over time. So, yeah. So uh, two more stories before we wrap, and they are both Cisco. We'll start with the deal, the Wall Street Journal report that Cisco Systems recently made an offer to acquire Splunk in a deal worth about $20 billion. Uh, Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins has neither confirmed or denied the offer during a financial call with analysts saying that only they are, quote, constantly evaluating potential opportunities. So this is out in the wind, but we have no official confirmation. Yeah. So uh, this is, we've talked a few times about how Cisco makes acquisitions for most of the time. Normally what it does is fronts up to a company on a Thursday or a Friday with a team of lawyers and they say, we want to meet with you and the executives meet. Cisco slaps an offer down on the table and says, you've got till Monday, nine o'clock to accept it or we're gone. <laughs> and uh, if that's what they did here, Splunk was to gone, yep, 20 billion, that's a good offer, but we're not going to do it. We, you know, we're already publicly listed. So I suspect that sort of seagull environment didn't work too well with Splunk. Splunk's pretty full of itself in, in that sense. And they've also got a good pipeline. And whether they've got a business that lasts over time as a data business, it's a very hot market segment. And Cisco has been under pressure from its investors to make significant acquisitions to boost growth. Yeah. So for example, I noticed that Cisco just approved a, an additional $15 billion of buyback 
So rather than buy a company like Splunk, maybe they didn't stock. get Splunk. Yeah. <laughs> so now they're going to buy their stock back as and to return value to dividend. So, But it is significant that Cisco did try to make a substantial acquisition. This is rumoured, so it's not necessarily true. But Cisco rarely buys companies for over a billion. Most of the vast majority of them acquisitions are uh, tiny. Even substantial acquisitions like Thousand Eyes at 1.2 billion or AppDynamics and Jasper at 3.3 billion or 4 billion were still not large compared to this. So, yeah. Yeah, I did a little looking. 20 billion would be three or four times more than Cisco has paid for any other company, although I can see why they would be willing to put that much cash up. I think Blunk fits nicely into Cisco's portfolio. Um, they're in the observability and security fields, two areas where Cisco has made significant acquisitions in the past. Uh, Splunk is notoriously expensive, and I think that generally aligns with Cisco's approach. Um, and Splunk has cloud and on-prem options, which also aligns with Cisco's product strategy. So I do see a good fit for them there if this acquisition actually goes through. I, I must admit there was some pretty funny stuff on Twitter. Somebody popped up on Twitter and said, did Cisco make an offer to buy Splunk or were they just trying to pay their yearly license fees? <laughs> That's uh, a good one. <laughs> Because, uh, yes, Splunk uh, does have a reputation for uh, not being yeah. uh, price sensitive. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least, sticking with Cisco, they, uh, Cisco put out a press release after the Super Bowl game here in the U.S. saying that the NFL had partnered with Cisco to secure the event from cyber attacks and, and disruption. And Cisco security scored a touchdown because the game went off without a hitch. Yeah, this was interesting because the press release came out. If you're going to market the fact that you're securing you know, your product did, uh, uh, you normally release it ahead of the yes. sports bowl thing, right? right. I, I assume I assume that there was some um, American sports bowl event where the cosplayers got together and had a big sports con. Is that what this is? Is that an NFL thing? Yes, yes. We, we, we all know yeah. you, you don't like sports and you love to make fun of them. But yes, that's what this was. Yeah, right. So the cosplayers get out on the pitch and run around and there's lots of money involved. In lots of money. Running sports cons. Yes. So that's great. But for security... <laughs> It seems a bit weird that after the event is over and the event's been secured, you release a press release saying, I've secured it. Um, but on the other hand, if I was actually involved in this project, I wouldn't want to release it ahead of time either. Because if you get right. hacked, like I said, <laughs> so I, I wanted to apologize for my initial snark and go like, I wouldn't release this beforehand either because you might be sitting on a bit of a negative, you know. I think it was probably wise to wait until after the event went off without a hitch before uh, touting that you were the one responsible for the security. Yes, I think that was a, a smart move on Cisco's part. That's right. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I apologize for my untimely snark. And uh, there you go. All right. Very good. Good, good luck with your sports con, you know, with all the cosplayers chasing a piece of pigskin. Yes. Yay for you. Yes. But that does make me wonder about next year's Super Bowl. Is Cisco also going to be responsible for that? But I guess that's a problem to worry about in 2023. All right, that wraps yeah. up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with DriveNets. That's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about how your organization can adopt a hyperscale model in your network to do things like improve TCO, scale out capabilities and services, and get supply chain diversity. Our sponsor is DriveNets, and we're speaking with Run Almag. He is head of product strategy. Ron, welcome to the podcast. And so why do I want a hyperscale approach if I'm not, say, an AWS or a Facebook? Well, to start with, you want to be as big or as strong as the hyperscalers. But there's one thing to look at is that the hyperscalers built something really big. They started small and they made all sorts of arrangements onto the ecosystem in order to enable them to do that. Essentially, yeah. they built whatever their infrastructure was, they built it like cloud. And this is exactly where service providers need to look at in order to grow and be as strong as and as capable as the hyperscalers. Okay, so my immediate question to that is, what is it that makes a network cloud in your mind? How does DriveNets put together a networking architecture that takes on the, you know, the valuable business features? Because that's cloud is a business thing. It's not really a technology thing, right? Except insofar as it's software. But how does DriveNets do that? Right. So cloud, cloud is kind of a, a consumption model. Another word to, to describe a cloud is something which is consumed as a service. In order to do that, you need to look at your resources as a pool of resources. When you mount an application onto the cloud, you consume resources. There is a mechanism that allocates and, and protects these resources for that application. That does not exist in networking. And this is exactly what the DriveNets has done in the sense of grabbing all the infrastructure, all of the resources which exists uh, within the boxes that we are using, and allocating them according to the right application. The right so application. Pitch, so pitch me, how do you do that, right? Because that sounds good to me, but does that mean I'm actually getting a, a, a white box switch and installing your operating system on top 
and then I've got this software uh, operated infrastructure, which now lets me configure it. So I can create verfs and MPLS and micro segments. Is that, is that the limits of, is this a general idea? That's the general idea and much more, because when you take yeah. a single box, eventually you end up with a single box. When you mm. take a cluster of boxes, then first off, you can bring these boxes from multiple sources. And secondly, you have a, a pool of resource which you can enlarge while the network is still alive, while your infrastructure is already running, you can enlarge it and scale it out. The logic of, of this you know, being the fact that you can not only run a single instance or a single application, or I should say a single router onto that infrastructure, but you can also group in multiple functions into that same infrastructure. So if I have- So this is kind of like, this is kind of like a chassis and each line card in the chassis does some forwarding and some smart. So it presents the ethernet ports forward and each blade in a chassis has the forwarding engine and sometimes it has the smart in it. And then if it needs to route the, pa- the backup off into the next card, it just routes over a backbone to it. So conceptually, DriveNets is building a chassis-like architecture out of 1RU, 2RU, Broadcom Silicon. Yes, and the, the differences are chassis is a great thing, but it has limitations. The one yeah. classic yeah. trivial limitation is the actual metal enclosure that wraps up this chassis. So we don't have this enclosure, which means that we can scale indefinitely uh, and just add more and more uh, boxes. The second thing is that all of these boxes are standard interfaces uh, based. So you don't have anything proprietary that prevents you from taking mm. in additional equipment and, and making it interoperate with what you already have. Everything is standard, everything is generic. And the, by the fact that it's all white boxes means that the source where these boxes should come from is also something that you can control. Yeah, you just raised an important point because I'm thinking, okay, you're trying to sell me some kind of special FPGA or SmartNIC or something or dedicated hardware that I'm tied to. You're saying this is running on merchant Broadcom Silicon on a white box that I could get from any number of vendors. Not only that, but the box is also open in, in its architecture and it's uh, um, contributed to the OCP. Okay, great. So then the secret sauce then happens in your software layer? Precisely. Our software layer creates an abstraction of all of these harder uh, resources and eventually uh, allocates these via API onto whatever application uh, that the network operating system needs to run. Like I said at the beginning, we started with routing and then you can expand these functions onto additional network functions such as firewall, DDoS prevention mechanism, uh, DPI, all sorts of other network functions, traditional network functions. Okay, so I'm getting a package of the tradition. When you say application, you're actually talking about a networking function. Exactly, but not only. Um, when you look at, at other applications that have uh, uh, some sort of a benefit, uh, of running as close as possible to the network, then it doesn't necessarily need to be a network function per se. It can also be an application such as, I don't know, a gaming host that needs to be as close as possible to the uh, subscribers. So putting it inside the network means a lot in terms of latency and the user experience. Okay. So do I need to buy different types of boxes for different functions like a core routing, aggregation routing? Well, essentially it's two boxes. Like you said at the beginning, there is a fabric box and there is a line card uh, type of box. All of these boxes have a CPU, they, they have an, N, uh, an, an NPU inside, and then the allocation of these hardware resources onto APIs or consumable resources for the function is something that the uh, operating system is taking care of. Got it. Okay. You mentioned APIs. What kind of uh, software chops would I as an operator need to have to get this box up and running and make it work and, and do things I want it to? Well, as an operator, you will start with a working function, right? You will have a router and you will operate that router traditionally, just like you use any other router and it will interoperate with all of whatever routing uh, mechanisms that you have in your network. That's a given, that's working. When you take it to the next level of introducing your own innovation onto your network and create differentiation between yourself as a service provider and other service provider, this is when you will face our already kind of ongoingly defined API. To start with, we're working with some service providers from, from the direction of them defining what they want to achieve, and then we build the API underneath it accordingly. At, at, a, at some point, once it's gonna be a little, a little bit more uh, robust, we will open this API and make it, make it um, kind of open for the market in general. Now, one of the things that DriveNets does is you actually take this idea of this clustered 
hardware and unifying it into a single forwarding plane. And you're actually able to turn this into a router or a multi-router, as you described it to me. Do you want to explain? So is that sort of like I can take 10 modern network switches, you know, 100 gig network switches, and turn the whole thing into a big router with, say, 10 slots of chassis-like performance? Is that the fundamental principle? Well, it's it's yes and no. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that you can take just any white box from the market. It needs to be boxes that were uh, built for that for for the yeah. purpose. And and yes, once that's established, and you take whatever boxes according to the um, say OCP definitions, then you can mix and match different vendors, different types of boxes, different ASICs within it. The software will kind of be able to consume all of this and treat the cluster, that cluster topology of, of uh, boxes connected to, to one another and make all of this behave and appear to appearing uh, devices yeah, as a single entity. Well, you've always got to, at the end of the day, the, the ASICs that are inside the switches matter and the CPUs that are on those boards that drive those ASICs matter for software operations. That's that's no different to a server, right? If you, you can't just run any software on any server, you always have to be at least somewhat concerned about the horsepower that's underneath. But the principle is kind of there. You're able to turn the network into a shared resource, but you're also able to turn many small switches into one big routing forwarding engine, routing engine. Exactly. Eventually, all of these standalone boxes appear, behave, uh, communicate to, to peering devices as one unified entity. It's one network element in right. terms of IP addressing, uh, routing tables, and so on. It's one device. And so, I'm, not, I'm not locked into a particular supply chain thing, which, which is important today. If you've got urgent requirements about getting stuff done, that ability to have diverse supply is going to be relevant to a lot of people. It's, it's, it's a matter of control. As a service provider, you want to have maximum control over whatever you enter in, into your network. When you're Buying from one vendor, one type or two types or five types of, of different equipment, eventually the vendor has every control over what you insert, when you insert things into your network, when you innovate, uh, and, and how much time before you actually need to deploy a new service or a new box do you need to place the order. Sometimes mm. it's, it's you know a year in advance. Uh, yeah. When you have multiple sources uh, and even multiple or different devices coming in and they all serve the same purpose under one software package, then in terms of control, the operator now has control. If it doesn't get whatever he's mm. looking for from vendor A, he will get it from vendor B and essentially it will operate exactly the same. And that's where the cloud aspect of this comes in, in that the underlying hardware, as long as it meets some basic requirements, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, just like in a cloud, you know, my compute infrastructure doesn't matter if it's Dell or HPE or some white box, as long as I've got that orchestration and overlay on top where I'm getting all the value from, you're doing the same thing just with routing. Precisely that. It's, it's exactly like you said, it's Dell and HP or other big other brand names, or you can go in, into ODMs and, and just take any server, which doesn't yeah. even have a, a recognized name and it costs a lot less and it does exactly the same. Now, maybe you've got a use case where cutting corners is the right thing and getting away from a brand is the right solution, but you need the same unified operations. So the, the, I've got the same operation for this high-end service that I'm providing, but sometimes I need to get a cheap box and I want to use the same tooling, the same operations, the same help desk processes to achieve that. Exactly. The type of box that you're entering uh, can be a lower or lower cost or a higher cost, uh, mm. uh, higher capacity or lower capacity. Uh, it's up to you in terms of the hardware feeds and speeds, in terms of how this box operates and being operated and orchestrated as part of your network. It's the same look and feel. I think the other cloud aspect of this is that when I need to increase my capacity, be it uh, CPU, throughput, whatever, I just add another box to the cluster, right? That's the whole purpose of being able to to scale out. Uh, if If you could add infinite cards into a chassis, you would. And that's what you have here. Uh, building this into a cluster topology essentially enables us to add more and more line cards, so to speak. And each mm. such uh, line card has, like you said, a CPU and an NPU. These are two blocks, hardware blocks uh, within the box. They are consumed as, as resources. The more boxes that you had, that pool of resources increases. So if you want to add a function onto an existing platform and you're missing, I don't know, TCAM entries, then you will add a couple of more boxes and increase your TCAM size, and then you're able to introduce that new function. And your hardware, your software is performing that abstraction function to make sure I'm just building a pool as opposed to having to do other kind of tweaking to get it into my cluster. 
Yes, I would say that's the key thing that, that our software is doing. That's the most interesting and sophisticated thing. Now, we talked a little bit about uh, applications or services I can run on top. Can I do security functions in addition to networking functions, like if I need a firewall service? Post uh, uh, routing as the first thing that we did, security was the second. That's the classic um, approach of introducing security onto your network. That was a classic, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Now, this, and like we said, this isn't necessarily that you're going to go and buy a brand name firewall and drop this onto the, you know, in a container on, on, a, on these switches, but this is the, the direction that you're heading. Yes and no. Yeah, mm. Yes, you would be able to buy a top line, state of the art, okay. branded named uh, firewall and mount it onto an existing uh, infrastructure. What needs to happen before is for us to work with that uh, firewall provider in order to make the proper adjustments so that the firwall will work as a yeah, cloud. So it'll see the interfaces. Like It'll see the router interfaces or the physical interfaces and it will work appropriately and all that type of stuff. So it's not. And, and enable itself to be distributed because that's the right. idea. The, the application mm -hmm. needs to be distributed over the multiple boxes. Otherwise, the scale out doesn't work. Right. Now, you've got customers doing this today. I just want to touch on this very quickly because you're not fresh out of startup mode. You've actually got carriers and telcos and tier two cloud providers running this today. Correct. Starting with AT&T and, and this is running the core of, of AT&T that, that this technology, uh, large, very large clusters, actually the biggest that we built are running this core for AT&T. And in addition to that, we have a couple of other carriers in the US. Uh, we have customers in Asia Pacific, in Europe, uh, all tier ones, by the way, and, and they're all doing great things, not only core routing, but also peering, aggregation routing, PE functions, all of this is in production. We'll run before we finish up. Are there any thoughts you want to leave us with? Yeah, uh, this is what we call multi-service and, and perhaps it, it's worth uh, another emphasis. Having one routing functions running on a cluster is one thing. Having multitude of these is another, is another thing. And when you have your uh, points of presence, uh, a central office, and you have a PE router there and a core router and an aggregation router, they are all co-located onto the same facility. And Network Cloud enables to run all of these different routers onto that same infrastructure. So it's one mm -hmm. cluster mm -hmm. and it's running all network functions. This is what we call uh, multi-service. Okay, so one cluster, multi-service. That's a good way to think of it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right, well, folks, if you've uh, piqued people's curiosity, they want to get more information, where should they go? Our website, www.drivenets.com. As simple as that. Fantastic. All right, that's drivenets.com. Well, thank you, Ron, for joining us. And thanks to DriveNets for being a sponsor. And thank you for being a listener. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers and find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.